Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Avi Press. Avi, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So for people who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Definitely. Uh, so my background is in software engineering, but these days I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Scarf. Scarf helps open source developers and open source projects get a better understanding of how their software is being used, and we connect them to the companies that rely on their work. Yeah. Why? Why did you get interested in that? Why is that a problem? That yeah. So this is actually something that I both ran into as a developer, um, you know, in, in the industry, um, as well as an open source maintainer on the other side of things where you know, sometimes I would run into bugs in open source libraries that we were using. Um, I used to work at Pandora um, after school. And you know, sometimes you have to do a lot of work to work around some bug when it might be more efficient to just actually have a relationship with that maintainer and you know, partner with them more closely, um, which is something that would have really helped out many times. Um, and then fast forward a little bit where I was um, an, one of the first engineers at a few different startups. Um, and I was working a lot of working on developer tools of my own that I had open sourced. And then I got the taste of being on the other side of that equation, on the maintainer side, having people at companies reach out to me with, you know, all sorts of things that they needed or wanted. And it was really hard for a maintainer to get a grasp of, you know, actually how my tools were being used in practice and what was really important to work on and what wasn't. And and downstream from that, how I would actually try to make my projects more sustainable and, uh, you know, financially successful as well to, you know, you know, keep the gas going. Um, and so given those difficulties on both sides of that operation of, um, you know, having commercially used open source software, Scarf is basically the, you know, the culmination of all that I learned on both sides of that to try to make things better. For That's awesome. And so, yeah, now that you are running Scarf, mainly are your customers, like, is it just like open source maintainers like you were? Or is it companies that have open source? Like, who are you working with, I guess, on a, on a daily basis? Yeah, so it, it's definitely a bit of a range. Um, we certainly have a lot of uh, indie open source developers like I used to be that are just, you know, working on their own thing, whether that's nights and weekends or full time. Um, but we also definitely work with a lot of companies, you know, especially the ones that do an open core type of model where you have, mm. you know, some open source project that has a lot of usage. And then, you know, the company commercializes that in some way, maybe sells like a cloud um, SaaS product or maybe a self-support or licensing or other kinds of, um, you know, commercialization models around a given project. Um, so it really varies in terms of who we work with. Yeah. So it sounds like it kind of covers that spectrum. One thing that... I've covered with some guests on the show before is open source being a really good, I want to say like a career pathway, but a lot of people really benefit a lot from being able to get into open source. Like some people consider it to be pretty low barrier to entry, but also highly visible, which makes people attractive to recruiters and companies and things like that. It seems like with your vantage point, now, not to mention, I guess, also having been a maintainer. Is that something that you you still see as a big career boost or has open source uh, contribution changed such that, I don't know, like open core is, is the barrier to entry higher now and, and different? So I guess to I guess ask the question again is, is how do you see open source as a like a career pathway or, or boost for junior devs these days? 
Yeah, I think that still definitely applies. You know, it, this certainly varies project to project, but you know, getting involved with open source definitely can make your development more visible. Um, I think it definitely is a you know a pro for any given software engineering candidate that they have contributed to open source. I think that that's one of those things that maybe a little bit you know it, it's often referenced and often talked about. So it's definitely not something that I see as like a negative if I don't see that on someone's resume. But it certainly can help and it can give you know it can give me a sense of you know what kinds of things that you you know you're gravitated towards working on. You know maybe it can give some samples of the code that you write. I think the other thing is just, you know, also just on the networking front as well, you'll meet a lot of really smart developers that, you know, you can, you know, befriend, um, just get to know. And, you know, I think one of the, I'm sure this will become a theme over the course of this conversation that I think just generally networking is, you know, very highly rated and still underrated in terms of, um, (laughs) in terms of uh, career, um, you know, how big of an impact that can have on your career. Um, You can't be rated highly enough. Yeah, I I, I really believe that Um, a lot of the, a lot of the opportunities that I've had in my life have uh, often come down to network. Um, And so open source is no exception to that. And yeah, and I think, you know, the other thing that I would also say about it is that it's a great way to see just the development practices of other groups. Um, that's one of the big draws of, you know, the first couple companies you might join um, and open source organizations will also have their own, you know, processes and workflows and learning those things can uh, is always helpful. Yeah, that's actually a really good, really good point that people may miss is that obviously the feature that you are creating or writing or the fix that you're adding or the documentation that you're adding to a project like there is the work itself to get that feature working or the fix or writing the test or whatever and actually that code and working within the application is of course a big part of the work but then there's also all this other process and workflow stuff that you mentioned and that can be very time consuming and and i think fruit like i guess in my head i'm just wondering as a potential employer, like, would I ever think that that process would be a barrier to entry? Or would I think that, eh, whatever, somebody could, and I think I'm gravitating towards, I would, I would like to see some experience of being able to work with a stronger, more in your face process, because I could just imagine, I could imagine a lot of developers just not being able to handle that. Like they do the the cowboy coding, so to speak. Is that something that, I mean, is that something that you have an opinion about? About like if you would hire somebody, like you would want to see them working with uh, with different workflows or do you think it's just like a, a good thing to, to get a taste? Hmm. I think this is one of those things where it might just depend. Um, you know, in the startup setting, for instance, like, you know, the ability to, you know, work effectively in like a giant bureaucracy is a lot less relevant. Um, Whereas if you're working at a really big company, that's uh, a huge pro um, to, to, you know, show proficiency working in that kind of environment. And so, you know, I think this is one of those things where it's very case by case, depending on the size of company you're trying to, you know, work at or grow your career at. Um, But I've always generally been a proponent of just being exposed to lots of different ways of thinking or, or ways of working and that mm-hmm. makes you more adaptable in a variety of situations so um you know i think the just yeah that breadth of experience always helps and that's kind of the cool thing about this is that you know since these communities are open anyone can join and get started and 
you know, some are easier than others to get into, but uh, ultimately kind of finding, finding your path is going to, you know, even just the process of trying is due to some, somewhere and brings the benefit of the other. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is interesting to think that, like, on one hand, you can't just come in and contribute to any open source project. So it's, it's not like there are no barriers to entry, but, you know, in the name, it's, it's open source. It's almost like default open that you can submit something to be considered uh, without having to, you know, go through interviews and things like that. It's, it's not likely to be, I guess, especially on the bigger projects that have more, more at stake to just, you know, accepting thing in, people are using it. You, you, you may not be successful without uh, talking to people first and really getting a sense of how they do things and getting a good understanding of the problem that you're trying to solve. But, you know, it is very welcome and they don't really think of new people the same way that, that a company would think of employees. So it is it is kind of a, in, in a lot of ways, it's a lot easier to just get involved, especially with, with a smaller contribution first. How did, how did you get involved with open source? Was it with your own projects or was it contributing to other projects or yeah, how did, how did you get started in that world? Yeah, I think at first it was largely just being a consumer of open source and, you know, in, in the modern day software environment, like most of your toolkit is probably open source and you're, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and bugs inevitably come up and, you know, you'll want to report them and work with the work with the project to, to get them resolved if you're relying on them heavily. And that was kind of my uh, very first um, real like interaction with the people behind the stuff that I was using. In terms of actually being a maintainer, it was really actually just that I was building stuff that, you know, really just for myself. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when I, well, for various tools, but like really just, oh, I'm using this tool. It's useful to me. Maybe it'll be useful to other people too. And then just putting it on GitHub and just seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. And that was really kind of the start of it for me was just having tools I was building and using myself promoting them just a little bit lightly just to see if other people were out there that it could be useful to as well and seeing that in some cases indeed it was and then you know people would slowly come in and come in with contributions of their own or come in with feature and bug requests and that's kind of how it happened for me since then i've gotten more into contributing to other people's projects when it makes sense um but for me it was kind of my own stuff that got me there yeah i think for me uh, it was sort of the same way. Like I created my own project and out there much more than trying to contribute to somebody else's mm -hmm. project. As we're talking about it, I think it's interesting that that is not the advice I give by default. And I'm kind of wondering why that is. I think if I were to, to give advice about getting started in open source, I almost recommend somebody contribute to another project. But by, yeah, I think my canonical advice is find a smaller-ish but still used project, use it, try and use it in something, figure out where the gaps are, either documentate tests or examples, almost always some gap or room in there because that's not really where people like to spend their time and do a small, like as small as you can, pull request, adding like a section to the docs or an, an additional, you know, test use case or some example and sort of go from there, but really keep the the main point to be like trying to have a conversation about it with the maintainer or maintainers rather than a, like a drive-by, just like try and get it in there and move on. Um, I think that's my my canonical advice is to start really small and to start more in the document and test like periphery mm -hmm. side, 
But now that that as we're talking, does it make more sense? Try and do your own project, see what it's like, sort of package it all up and try and have like complete, but again, small project that has checks all the boxes, including you mentioned, I'm um, glad you did. And I actually want a little bit more about this, but you mentioned promotion. And so I think the, the whole package would solve some problem, like solve one problem, ideally solve it well have it well-documented, so have a really good readme, how to use it, what it's for, examples, and have some good tests so that if somebody does want to contribute to it, they know that they're not going to break you know, existing functionality. And then, yeah, promote it, actually share it somewhere, ideally find the community that would, would benefit from it. Um, and I can talk a little bit about what I did most recently for a project on that front. Um, and I kind of wonder, like, is that... Do you think that that is a better use of time for a foray, or is that a little too challenging to come up with something like that you're just starting out? Yeah, I will say that for me, having my own projects that I you know started and finished end to end was incredibly impactful. Um, you know, just because you you cover so much ground that way, you're you're gonna. You're going to learn a ton because you're going to have a ton of, <laughs> um, you're going to run into a ton of roadblocks along the way and kind of how you systematically get by each one. There's a lot of learn there. On the other side, though, I, I do, I do very much agree that there's a lot of value in, you know, trying to step into like, you know, a smaller, potentially more accessible project and, and uh, submit some contributions if you, if you can. Um, and so ultimately, I would say both are great and you should do both if you can. You know, if it's kind of one or the other, it always gets case by case for whatever you might have time for in your life. Like, you know, obviously this is, um, this stuff takes time and is time consuming. Not everyone <laughs> can, can do that. Um, yeah. But if you can, there's there's a lot of, I would say the, the things that you'll learn from those experiences are related, but often very different. I would say on that, on that documentation um, front, I really, really agree with that. And I think that one thing that I sometimes advise other people to do is look, you know, obviously stop in and, and um, you know, try to talk to people in the community, but, you know, learning how to get yourself set up to make contributions, you know, specifically with the view of like, how can I make it easier for the next person just like me to come in and, and make a contribution? So hmm. either the docs are incredible and you get to making, you know, meaningful code contributions right away. And if, if so, like, wow, that's an amazing open source project. And, <laughs> yeah, you and, found one of the five. Uh, right, projects. exactly. <laughs> right. And if not, you're going to run into tons of questions and you can better document the answers to those questions and then help the next person. And then you're helping that project become, you know, a little bit closer to that mythical, um, you know, really seamless onboarding experience, which, um, you know, almost no one has ever achieved. Yeah. I and, and it's also because it's not a steady state, too. So right. even if it is achieved for some like point in time, the project evolves. And, yep. you know, it's it's hard to keep that going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, you'll learn you'll learn very different things from doing that. And if you can, they're both very worth your time. Yeah. So. OK, so so your your experience with open source, actually, I, I, I wanted to ask. So what I guess what were those projects? How did you promote them? I'm kind of curious if there's any kind of story there that people could maybe sort of get a little bit more concrete sense of like, oh, okay, I could do something. Yeah. So I think the one of the main ones I would say that took off the most while I was um, while I was an engineer at a real small startup is a command line tool and server that was called Toodles. And what it would do is you would run it in your code base, it would scan the code base and find all the to-dos that were left in the code. 
and it would then you know make them visual visualized in like a web dashboard and you could add metadata and you know edit them kind of in the ui and those would actually get applied to the code and you could check oh, them in and, that's awesome yeah and i was working at a place that the code base was just littered with these all over um and we were like really quickly losing track of them and so it was like kind <laughs> of a cool point, way to though? yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, you know you do that just to lose track later it's um and so this was kind of a tool that was meant to you know get get a a little bit of a handle on all those like pieces of tech debt that we were missing um i'm not sure if i would i'm not sure if i would advocate for this workflow in the long run but you know for the situation we were in it was just what Mm -hmm. we needed um and so as soon as i had built that and the company that i was at was using that tool we were like you know we were looking at it every like couple of weeks to just kind of see what what new to do's came up and like what we wanted to triage and stuff and i eventually put that up on github and then i think like my promoting open source flow was typically i would post it to like very specific communities so like i was coding in haskell so i'd like post it to like the haskell subreddit um, and like get feedback on that. And then I would get progressively more and more general with it. And like Hacker News would be one of the main places that I, it would get a lot of traffic from. And so by the time that I posted it to Hacker News, like it already had, you know, a little bit of stars, some, there, there was like a little bit of external activity beyond just me there. And then, you know, for that particular tool, it happened really well on Hacker News and got a lot of, um, you know, a lot of new people looking at it that way. And so. You know, obviously those kinds of publicity shotgun blasts are really temporary in terms yeah. of the attention that it gets. But, um, you know, from there, it's all up to you for how you uh, take advantage of that of that visibility and to try to hopefully, you know, get people contributing in an ongoing fashion and then, um, you know, for it goes. Yeah. And so that was kind of, that wasn't the first project that mm-hmm. I put out there, but that was one of the more like successful ones that got me thinking about this topic a lot more deeply. Got it. I really like that approach you touched on of kind of thinking about the size friendly of yeah, the community. Absolutely. Like those, those things are uh, inversely correlated. So yep. like Hacker News, I think uh, sort of one of the tougher places traction. And so you want to work your way up to it. Haskell, I mean, not, not yeah. yeah, it's like, you know, it is totally like a one of the, I don't know, like on one hand, it's like one of the mainstream programs, probably like the lead. <laughs> I don't know how I want to like draw these lines. But right. Like right. Of the, the more mainstream program is definitely, uh, yeah, say. And I imagine not, that's not a community time in, but I imagine it would be friendly to promoting this project like written in. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Then, yeah. Because it's novel like, to them sort of just. Stepping stone. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like novel to them just by yeah. being written in Haskell and then people are looking at it under a different <laughs> lens and like, oh, this is cool. And then people interact and then, and then you get bigger and bigger and the, the microscope gets and finer on terms of like the actual usability of what you're building and, you know, all that other, all the other look at it. Yeah. That, and so I, I alluded to a project that I had, uh, video download tool.io. I won't really go into the specific why I created it. It seemed like a weirdo, but the, <laughs> um, but what it does is it lets you download parts of YouTube videos oh, cool. pretty easily. And so, you know, you just paste in the URL into the web app and then it, it loads up the video in a, in a player for you. And then it gives you some, so you can either just download it straight you know, from there, or you can change uh, change it to like a, a higher resolution one, like 720. Uh, but the main point is that you can trim the timeline and set the start point and the end point of the timeline. You download the, the, you know, the start and end, what you, what you would call it, but just the period of time of the video that you're actually. But beyond that, you can also crop the video frame. So 
if let's just say for watching uh, the video that you're interested in is maybe like a talk that somebody gave. So at JSLA, you know, Meetup, when we put videos online, it's uh, half the, not half, but a lot of the screen is the slides. So as they're going through the slides, it's actually, you know, their, their, depth, their, their screen being shared as their slides. And then the other part is maybe just small video of their face and them talking. And then, of course, there's some stuff for sponsors and the title of their. So if you wanted just their slides to crop the video to just start starting to talk about something, the voiceover and just their slides, you'd be able to use this tool to do that. So you'd set the start time in the video, the end time, and then you can drag a little crop tool over the part of it that you want, and then you hit download, it'll just download that specific slice of time and that part. And so I built this as a tool for me because I was doing this to a bunch of videos that are from YouTube, and I decided, you know, okay, what the hell, this is working. I should do the thing where I package it up and make it easy for other people to use it and put it out there and do the whole open source thing that I have not done in, a, in quite a while now that, that most of my time is building team departments. So it was sort of a fun novel exercise, but two things. One, it's amazing how time consuming that packaging Absolutely. part is with the readme and the like explaining what it is and, and sort of trying to take out just the like specific use cases. So when you build something for you, you're like really directly scratch, scratching your own itch that won't necessarily apply to a hypothetical general audience. And so trying to, to figure out what those are and make it a little bit more applicable, so time consuming. And then second, which is the whole reason of why I'm bringing this up, is how do you then tell people about it? How do you promote it? And how do you, if you are going to package this up and put it out there, how do you let people know about it, particularly the people who are going to find it useful? And so one thing that I did for this tool was um, under the under the hood, this tool is using a command line tool called, what is it, yt-dlp, which is a fork of YouTube-dl, which is a command line tool for downloading YouTube videos. Um, and I guess it actually it can use it, you can use a whole bunch of other sites with it too. But uh, I think the primary use case is obviously YouTube. And as a very I guess full featured command line tool, it lets um, not only just do the the default behavior of download the video, but you can also ask it to just give you all of the the formats that are available and. Uh, spit out the effectively the CDN URL of like where that real video file is actually hosted behind, and that's the functionality that I use from uh, from this command line tool. Is I'm leveraging its ability to find the real URL, which is how I do that trick of loading it on the the page in a video player for you to see, and then also how to do like some of the download. Um, the video editing is separate, and I, but the main sort of technology that I'm taking advantage of is this command line tool, YTDLP. And so to promote it, I started searching on Google. Google has like these different search operators. So like site colon will restrict your search to just links from a particular domain. So in this case, I did site reddit.com. And then I was looking on Reddit where all the comments about YTDLP were. So I wanted to see who were the who were the communities and the subreddits that were already talking about YTDLP because those are likely the communities that would be interested in you know an easy to use uh, web app that could do some of those those things that they're already using and that's how I found the subreddit 
uh, data hoarder, which I was kind of familiar with. But turns out uh, the people in that subreddit are all about YouTube DL and YTDLP. And uh, so that was very clever in my mind. Yeah, in my mind, that was a good a good fit for the type of people who would benefit from this. And so I posted it there and I actually wound up hitting the top of the subreddit when I I posted it, you know, a couple hundred internet points, uh, which, uh, you know, so drinks on me. (laughs) (laughs) But very cool. That's Uh, a really, that's a really cool approach to that. Um, Yeah, just like doing research on on the kind of communities ahead of time, you know, making sure you're familiar Mm -hmm. with what they like before you come to them, especially if you're new to them, you're probably very welcome. Yeah, do the drive-by posts and then never to be seen again. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, just shotgun blast, like all these different community um and so i so that one that one i did first and it just seemed like a really good match we we're interested in and then i also did hacker news because because why not and hacker news was interesting because it was complete crickets i got like one upvote or like five over the coast course of 24 yeah, hours yeah there's a bit of luck involved just, with that you just gotta get indeed. seen at the right time by a couple people like uh, there's so much like trajectory elements to it and that beginning of that trajectory is like not really that determined given the content so yeah that's not surprising yeah. to hear um and i've had similar experiences where like there's not a huge correlation with how interesting the thing is that I'm posting and how well it does. It seems like there's just to it. Um, yeah, and that's kind of what we're all dealing so, with. So, I mean, it's, but but I will say, uh, thanks to our mutual friend, Justin Dorfman, mm-hmm. who was recently on the show, is he suggested that I actually email uh, Hacker News and ask for some feedback, basically. Like, hey, and I forget exactly what I put in the email, but it was something along the lines of, Hey, I put a lot of time into this thing. I tried to package it up so that it was, you know, beneficial for people. I was, you know, it's really, I put it out there for other people and I thought I did it a good way, but clearly not, you know, do you have any feedback for me? Like, you know, you see all of this stuff for like show Hacker News. Uh, Do you have any feedback for me? So maybe on my next project or something, I can make it more attractive or more helpful to people on, on the site. And it's it, so two things came back, which are pretty interesting, was one, reiterating what you just said, which is there's a lot of luck that the, they came back and said, like, look, like it, there's a lot of randomness involved. That said, you know, we think that your title maybe might have been a little less like clear. So we're going to change the title for you to some, you know, using language from your site that we think makes it a little bit more clear about what it does. And we're going to put it in the what's called the second chance queue, right. where it randomly gets placement on the front page. And uh, so it got a it got another shot, and it wound up hanging out on the front page for a little bit. It wound up with I don't know somewhere between one and two hundred points, there you which go. is pretty 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 decent. So I got you know a good amount of traffic from that as well. And so that's the other. I guess it's sort of like a secret. I feel like. <laughs> It's probably not good to speak too widely about that because I look at it like the suggestion of like, hey, email them and like annoy them and ask them <laughs> yeah, to like, not give scalable. you another chance is not scalable and probably unlikely to to work. But I think if you do put in like if you do put a lot of work into it and you are thoughtful and you actually genuinely are interested in feedback of like why it didn't work, then I think it might make sense to to actually ask uh, for some feedback and and maybe that will give you a, a sort of another shot at the front page. But I wouldn't it's a, it's 
something to keep in mind. But I, I wouldn't I, I'd caution anybody listening for like really kind of depending on on that. And I'm a little bit worried that if too many people do that, that's like, <laughs> ruins it for everyone. I'm great. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I very I have a, had a similar experience where just the the support team at at Hacker News are. Uh, yeah, it's really impressive too. I mean, it's just like wow, like. I am. I feel like if I were in your position, I would be so jaded and like fed up with people. But they are really nice and responsive. It's great that they care about fostering community like that. Right. Yeah. So outside of, I guess, outside of promotion, in my mind, I think the neuron next to it is something that you were talking about earlier, which is networking. Mm-hmm. I think both of them are a form of getting yourself out there. One maybe is a little bit more like getting your project out there, getting your work out there. Um, related is networking. So how, I guess you can answer either question or both, which is how do you suggest in your mind, like what's the best way to network? Or uh, alternatively is how has it worked out for you? I mean, in what ways have you benefited from quote unquote networking and how did you go about it? Yeah, great question. Um, I think like if I was going to give, you know, the, the, the one sentence advice here, it would really just be like, go talk to people, go ask. But, you know, more specifically, I think, well, maybe I can share one story that, that um, you know, happened early on for me, which so while I was at Pandora, I was maybe like a year or so into working there and, you know, had just over over time had, you know, de- developed the desire to connect with the CTO of the company and just like, you know, just chat with him and, and you know, hear his thoughts on various parts of the business and stuff. And at the time, knew that he was a very busy person, and it seemed very daunting to ever actually connect with him. What I ended up doing, I literally just shot him an email that said, like, hey, I'd love to, you know, get coffee sometime. I don't care if it's today or in a year. Like, can we make it happen sometime? And uh, two months later, we had coffee. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I got to develop a bit of a, a develop a relationship with him, and now he's one of the advisors at Scarf. Um, wow, that's amazing. And that's great. Yeah. And like that kind of thing, you know, and he was very early on in that when I was just kind of ruminating on, on Scarf as an idea and um, the fact that he was interested in it and wanted to get involved was like, you know, itself a good indicator, um, yeah. like definitely is a good signal for others that I was talking. And at the time, it felt very bold to just go email him. Um, but at the same time, when I was thinking about like, you know, what would be, you know, one of the most impactful people I could network with and like, that was the person. And so I think, you know, the larger advice here is like, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, how busy a person is, if you just, you know, very genuinely um, just ask, you know, to get coffee with someone or just to chat with them or, you know, whatever that might be. Um, It's never going to happen if you don't ask. You know, obviously, you want to be respectful of people's time and not, you know, come in with any kinds of, you know, unrealistic expectations about the turnaround of something like that. But putting yourself in a position where these kinds of conversations can happen and you can meet these meet people like that, I think is um, that that has served me very well. And I think um, a lot of other people could uh, could benefit from trying out things like that, too. Got it. Yeah. So so it sounds all right. So everyone listening, uh, you should all email the CTO of Pandora. I think that's the scale. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't do that. Um, But, uh, you know, I think. You know, maybe think about who might be, you know, the dream person that you'd want to like go to for career advice and then just try it. Um, And I think that a lot of people miss out on opportunities that they could have had if they had just asked. 
Um, and, you know, uh, you all obviously have to be prepared for people to, you know, politely say no. Um, that's yeah, okay. Or ignore you. Yeah, or just ignore you. And, you know, if they do, follow up, try again. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the experience of starting a company has got me a lot more resistant to, you know, the fear of, oh, am I bugging someone if I just remind yeah. them again? Or what if I just try again? Or what if I ask in the first place? And I think that, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities out there um, if you're if you're just willing to just give it a, give it a shot. Um, and so, yeah, that was a really, I, I think as far as networking goes, that was like a really, that was an impactful experience for me. Just like, yeah. I, I never, I thought that had a very low probability of succeeding and it actually did. Yeah. Do you remember what made you just to do it? Um, so I had always known that I had wanted to start a company at some point in my life. Um, and I think at the time, and you know, this, this could maybe get into kind of another, another line of, of thought here, but like, I was really wanting to learn more about other sides of the business beyond just, uh, development. And I kind of was, you know, looking at, you know, just the people involved with the company. And that just seemed like a very compelling, um, really just like a compelling uh, role at the, at the company that I wanted to learn more about. Um, and like, what is it like to be a CTO of a, of a, you know, of a sizable company? I have no idea, but I wanted to learn more about it. And so that was kind of the, I ended up to talk to about it. And so, yeah, I think being, you know, very intentional about what your goals are and, and then just identifying. Yeah, it sounds like you had a, sp- yeah, you had a specific curiosity. Like, yeah, I think you, there was there was something in particular that you had a reason for contact that person. Like it wasn't just yeah, it wasn't wasn't so aimless. Um, right. So yeah, yeah that's I think busy people definitely are going to be a little bit hesitant to you know jump on the call that has absolutely no objective. Maybe, um, mm-hmm. but you know, I think that a lot of people you know are like. Are, are very are very amenable to helping people that have specific things they want to get out of it and ask in a way that's respectful. Um, I think that goes away a long way with a lot of people. It, it would with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and I think in your case too, it sounds like the type of thing that they they would enjoy doing. It's something they would like doing. A lot of people in positions wouldn't end up there if they, if they didn't like mentoring people, if they didn't like developing, you know, kind of at those levels, developing other people that they, that they do a lot. And so they they often welcome that opportunity in a lot of cases, as long as you are polite and not going to waste their time and a whole bunch of you can you can communicate. Uh, okay, so the, since, uh, you know, since working at Pandora and a, and a large company to, to going out on your own, starting your own company, how has, how has your mindset changed? Yeah, I would say many, many ways. Um, I think a lot of them root from seeing, well, software and development and code as just one piece of the puzzle to the business. Um, when I was an engineer and I was you know, really, really focused on the code that I was writing, my life revolved around making sure that that code was wonderful. You know, it's well tested, <laughs> really pristine and elegant. Um, and I wanted to take all the time that I could take to eliminate any tech debt that I was creating. And like, that's, you know, a lot of context, the right thing to be doing. Um, but now, uh, now running a company in, in um, you know, in startup land, it's very different. The calculus is how fast can we ship and how much tech debt can we uh, reasonably take uh, in the name of shipping faster and to you know get things out to our users and to validate what we're doing um, and you know that 
just a total shift in the way I was thinking and the way I thought about writing code and what we were doing in, in this in the scope of the business. And even while I was at Pandora and beyond, was you know always very interested in the other sides of the business and how all the different parts of the organization would fit together. Um, and that definitely makes you see code, I think, in a different way and kind of, you know, the practices that you do, um, you know, and exactly what those serve, like eliminating tech debt just in its own, is not, you know, in its own right, necessarily a good thing to do. Like it might be good, but there's a lot of cases where you shouldn't. Um, and yeah, so maybe the way that I look at tech debt is now very different. Yeah, that's, uh, tech debt can be very detrimental. It can cause a lot of problems, but it is not it is often not worth the increasing amount of effort required to eradicate every last bit of it. And then right. also, uh, I think it's probably your perspective has definitely changed a business owner because debt is actually very useful to, to a business, either borrowing money or getting investments like that, that, that can be very useful. And so it's, it's, it's always not like debt is not always a bad thing. Like it, right. It, yeah, like you should have some amount of it. Um, and that that even changed like how I interviewed at companies. Like mm. I think early on in my career, I was I would always ask like, you know, what is how does the what's the health of the code base right now? Like how much tech debt is there? Um, and I learned that, you know, I, I mean, I was at startups. So it was, a, it was, you know, in that context, that was actually less useful of a question mm. um, because the organization should be taking some tech debt. They would be, you know, it would be a disservice not to. But, you know, kind of learning the right ways to look at that and, you know, the what tech debt can you live with, what shouldn't you, what, what is actually just detrimental to the developer experience and, you know, that kind of balance and just seeing code as just another arm, as another, another piece of a larger puzzle um, rather than the only thing in your world. And, you know, that also having that point of view also was what, you know, leads you to networking with more people at your company or, you know, just learning about different things beyond your immediate purview, which will, you know, often lead to tons of opportunities down down the road in, in different ways. That's a, that's a really good point. I mean, I think as, like, if you are working in technology, like, oftentimes you are going to be most useful to people who are in other, or, you know, other parts of the organization. Like, they're going to be able to handle their side of the business. And knowing you being able to handle the technology part is going to be attractive. Oftentimes, you know, even more so than somebody who knows you from technology, although that is also very, they're working in tech and they, within them, they're going to pull you in, like their team like that. Mm-hmm. I, I guess a, a question that I have for you is this, I don't know if I really want to say respect or this curiosity or this interest in the other parts of the the business. Like, do you think that is something that is useful for, for everyone? Or maybe like, do you think it's realistic for someone to just be like, no, all I care about is the tech. That's what I'm going to specialize in. That's just going to be I'm just going to focus. And so that's, you know, that's what I'm going to focus on. You know, so do you think that this is something that that is important to you just because you would eventually become a founder and it's an important, you know, for founders? Or would you say that knowing what you know, this is important for everyone, no matter their position, foster that? that curiosity and that in cooperation? Mm, I love that question. Yeah. Like, why, why should you care if you don't? I think that just about everyone should care about you know, the, the other parts of the business where, where you work. Um, you know, there's obviously some people that, you know, you find your niche at a really big company, you're just working on like very pure, like platform tech or something, you don't really have to care. That 
that is certainly uh, a role that you may find yourself in if that's the way that you want to work. But I would say broadly, especially if you know you're trying to you know advance your career, become more senior in your role, I think one of the things that makes a really great engineer is kind of proactively knowing the most impactful things you can do. And that's something because you know if if someone is you know just getting started, you know their manager probably should be very hands on with them. You need to kind of okay, I'm done with this task. What's next? And like that's a workflow that. You know, it, like we we all are in that stage at some point in our career. But I think beyond that, um, you know, especially if I'm like hiring a very senior engineer, like I want to know that you're going to be able to have a holistic view of what the business does and kind of, you know, yourself know what the right thing, uh, you know, the most impactful thing you can do and then just go do it. And that's what I think makes the very, very productive engineers very productive <laughs> is that you know they're working on the right things. Um, they're you know proactively doing stuff kind of ahead of when it absolutely needed to get done. Um, and so, yeah, at a high level, I would say my advice to almost everyone would be you should definitely learn about the various um, sides to to whatever business you might be in. It'll make you a better engineer. Um, it'll make you a better person to work with. You'll learn a lot, and you'll probably meet more people as you. Um, and so. The, the, there's so many benefits to doing that. That's not to say you have to do these things, but I think that it's um, definitely a recipe um, for success. Hey, Avi, this has been great. Where can people find out more about you online? Yeah, um, so definitely check out scarf.sh, um, uh, the company that I am building right now. Um, you can find me online. My website is avi.press, uh, where you can follow me on Twitter at avi. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior. Remote work is here to stay. I can show you how to find and hire a full team of remote senior engineers for a quarter of what you'd pay at local rates. To learn more, check out superstruct.tech slash four phase. That's F-O-U-R dash P-H-A-S-E.